willing to challenge and say that I don't, I don't even think that's good for your own relationship with that boyfriend or girlfriend. But again, that's how society is raising us. That's we, we all have to somehow get a husband by by I don't know age twenty four, then crank out two kids by age twenty nine. Somehow make six figures. Somehow pay for these kids' education. Like, it, it, I feel that the game has changed, but the old the old stock folks who are still in power don't get it. So they keep they uphold these societal norms that are causing massive increases in mental health issues and are leading to loneliness and leading to fragmented societies. So yeah, technology is there and you know that's definitely not helping in some cases. But I think it's just structural issues with this 1930s way of trying to live a life in the year 2020. The origins of the phrase is a mystery. It takes a village to raise a child is a proverb that's spirited from African or Native American cultures. The phrase translates into saying that it takes an entire community of different people interacting with children in order for children to experience and grow in a safe environment. The thought leaders, game changers, and innovators that we look up to are often impacted by the same thing. They've been exposed to people, environments, and interactions that have helped shape and define who they are today. It Takes a Sea Tribe Village aims to identify, dissect, and celebrate the unsung heroes, things, and experiences that have impacted the greatest minds of our generation, and how these individuals are paying it forward for those to come. This episode is brought to you by the Sea Tribe Festival, the very first media initiative of Sea Tribe Society. At Sea Tribe Festival, we aim to reimagine the festival experience with the goal of bringing together innovative and creative people and proactive thinkers. By integrating a business conference with music performances, trendy fashion shows, intimate roundtable discussions, culinary experiences, wellness sessions, and artistic activations, Sea Tribe curates inspiring environments that help catalyze action. This episode was also brought to you by Autonomic. Autonomic removes the biggest hassle when you are building software, which is actually testing it. By training computers, algorithms, and machine learning techniques to test software for companies so that your most expensive engineering talent can spend the time doing things that they actually like to do, which is releasing new products and new features. Shaz Nasser has over 10 years of work experience in government and business sectors as a digital change management practitioner. In other words, he helps big companies scale really, really fast during this digital era. He has worked with academics at the North South Institute, leading government bureaucrats with three Canadian federal government agencies, senior lobbyists at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and with established entrepreneurs at Shopify. 
With the center strategy in the Middle East, he has helped lead major transformation change, management projects that span across sectors that include smart nation strategies, crowdsourcing public policy programs, and helping both countries and companies embrace the digital economy in UAE and Saudi Arabia. He led the ICT portfolio with Global Affairs Canada Trade Commissioner Service in New York City, which aims to help usher in a new era of commerce between USA and Canada through empowering Canadian startups to win in the USA and globally. Shaz, well, thanks for joining us for the Takes a Village Sea Tribe podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. It's really nice of you to invite. As we get started here, can you maybe give me a little bit of an idea on on your background? I know we, you know, in the intro that we were we did for this podcast specifically, you know, we, we kind of provided some color on that. But maybe if you could just uh, walk the audience through uh, just a quick rundown of your your background and where you are today. Sure, definitely. So I've had over 10 years of work experience within the government and the private sector, a lot of management consulting. I worked in the Middle East for a center strategy. I worked for the Canadian government as well. Uh, currently, right now, I am in New York and I'm working for Microsoft as a digital advisor slash uh, director of digital transformation. And my main clients are basically uh, government entities, helping them use technology and helping them be more strategic with their uh, digital strategy, bringing it to life. And you're a fairly young guy. So how do you pick up a role like that? I mean, that's, that's <laughs> I, Yeah, I, I know. Um, I think it was just Microsoft taking a chance on me and realizing that I may not have the ideal 17 years of experience, but the years that I do have are, I guess, uh, relevant and powerful to what they wanted. So I guess it's more about companies and organizations realizing that arbitrarily setting that, you know, 17 years, that's it. It's not conducive to building a healthy culture or having the right people in the room. So kudos to them for taking a chance on me, I guess. Um, and then I guess also I just started working earlier on in my life. Like during university, I would make sure I would work and do internships and everything I could possibly do. So when I graduated, it wasn't like I was just entering the labor market. It was more about I have all these great experiences. Let's pick one and deep dive. And back to that first point of Microsoft taking a chance, can you maybe provide some color around the things that took place for uh, just kind of walk us through how those conversations arose and, you know, maybe where you were when you, you know, you got the call from Microsoft and, you know, what, what do you think some of those critical paths were to, to get you to that point? Um, or yeah, the things that, you know, maybe the conversations that went back and forth and the banter. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, can, I think it, I'll start from the very um, beginning. So during uh, university, I worked with the government. I worked with some lobby firms. I worked for a startup right after university. And the goal there was to get as much experience to eventually become a management consultant. 
because within that area, you need to be flexible and be able to work in multiple industries. So I did that. And then uh, eventually I got a job after university with Shopify as a uh, social media slash digital strategist, um, very junior role. But it was a great opportunity to help reamp their entire digital strategy through their social media channels. Um, so that was amazing. That's kind of how I kind of jumped in there. And at that time, I was thinking, should I do an MBA or should I do this uh, short job at Shopify? I eventually went for uh, Shopify and uh, really worked out because eventually I just um, completed that six months journey. And then I blasted off to the Middle East because I wanted to be a management consultant in an emerging market because you get to do a lot more impactful work faster rather than just boringly working at some useless Excel sheet that no partner will actually look at. So, so I, I, that kind of work, I did I, another gamble. I went off to the Middle East and um, I got a couple of interviews from different you know organizations from Bain to a couple of banks to Accenture and Accenture and I bonded the most and I got that gig as uh, I joined as a junior consultant. Um, I was there for about three years and I, that's where I worked with governments and I also work with the private sector, um, basically implementing some pretty large digital transformation projects within change management. So that's kind of where I got that consulting experience and I eventually, fortunately, went up the ranks and all that stuff, got that promotion. Um, after my three years in the UAE, I was very grateful for the opportunity, but I was getting a bit tired of the so-called expat lifestyle. And I was <laughs> kind of like, this is great, but I'm all about adventure. I moved out to the Middle East to be adventurous, not to get into a comfort zone. So now it's time to think about a new opportunity. So I was in the midst of um, applying for different things and uh, basically um, eventually decided to move to New York after a few uh, periods. Then I showed up in New York and I applied to different things. I'm also born in Miami, Florida, so I'm a dual citizen, American and Canadian. Wow. Um, what that always helps uh, in terms of you <laughs> and all that. So then after um, searching here and there, I believe about two or three friends sent me the same job and they don't know each other. So it was very serious <laughs> and it was to join the Department of Foreign Affairs for Canada as a trade commissioner based here in New York. So it's not a diplomatic position, it's a locally engaged, which means you're meant to stay in New York and you work for the consulate. Uh, underneath the Global Affairs Canada. So I applied and um, it was it was strange because the job description basically described like they wanted someone that worked with startups, they wanted someone that was a management consultant, and they wanted someone that understands the government. I was like, well, <laughs> I will raise my hand. So seven, uh, five or seven rounds later, I was very fortunate to get that and I became a trade commissioner. And basically, in short, what a trade commissioner is, it's it's basically champions of startups in Canada and helping them export their business globally. So I'm based in New York and the whole idea is how do I work with AI and digital media and FinTech startups in Canada to get them to come sell in New York. So basically turn them into thought leaders, plug them into different events so they can speak and then get them used to the New York way of doing business, business development. So let's say you're an AI startup, you want to sell to JP Morgan and CNN. So then I would be able to make the intros to those companies and importantly able to 
brief you and like give you advice and say, okay, this is what they want. This is what the market wants. This is what you are. This is how you should adjust your pitch. Or maybe you want to raise money. Um, we had different trade commissioners also helping out in that aspect as well. So after doing that for two and a half years, I loved it. It was a really it was one of the biggest honors of my life to um, help uh, deliver uh, with a comprehensive team the, the new digital trade strategy by the prime minister. Um, but I was getting um, kind of like angsty and kind of wanted to go back into management consulting. But I didn't want to go back and like go purely back into the private sector and just optimize some type of sales channel to help some company sell more socks. That wasn't really my passion per se. Uh, so um, I found basically a, a, like a friend of mine just said, uh, it sounds like you want to do digital transformation. Have you heard about Microsoft and their new digital advisory group? And I didn't. So I just listened to what he had to say. And it seemed fascinating. The great CEO um, with the growth mindset. And basically, he wants Microsoft to be at the forefront of digital transformation. And there was an opening within um, within basically helping governments. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. It's a good nexus between working for the private sector, but also at the end of the day, helping government be more effective with their technology. So he eventually uh, referred me and uh, things moved on. And I had about, I don't know, five or six interviews. And there I am. I am now working for Microsoft as a digital advisor. And our goal basically, I mean, I have no sales targets. I am technologically agnostic. Um, I suppose if you were the government and you're looking at me as an option, you would also look at McKenzie or BCD Digital as potential options as well. So that's kind of the space that we operate in. So I don't go in trying to sell Microsoft Word. I more go in and trying to understand your overall strategy. How do we bring it to life? And, of course, I have a whole uh, team of coders and software engineers that can bring your strategy to life. So that's kind of in a nutshell how I got here and where I am today. Wow, lots to unpack there. (laughs) And it seems that you are, you like to play in the big markets. I mean, you mentioned the UAE, New York, Miami. I mean, those are some, you know, you gotta be ready to play ball if if you wanna, (laughs) you know, have an impact in in those sectors, right? I mean, I think the common phrase in New York is, you know, it's a concrete jungle. <laughs> if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. It is definitely, yeah, it is, yeah. New York definitely, um, it questions, it forces you to think about why you exist. Sounds dramatic, <laughs> but it, it's pretty uh, tough here. But, I mean, it takes a certain type of personality to want that and to continually push themselves to keep in, in being innovative. So, it's a good fit. I really feel at home here in New York. Beautiful. What is one thing that people may not know about you? Ah, wow, that's a good question. Um, I think going with my gut, it was most people think I'm extroverted because um, I plan many social events and I have a magazine that I co-founded and I guess I'm outgoing, but I'm actually more introverted. I'm, I know there is ambient vert in the middle, but I'm, I took all those personality tests. I also listen to myself, but I'm actually an introvert with some strong aspects of being extrovert. 
Um, but I definitely don't get charged by hanging out with a million people every single day. I don't enjoy large networking events. I'm more of a things like this, like a one-to-one deep dive. Um, I love going home and then just not talking for like an hour or two. So I'm definitely, I think that's why the one thing people get most shocked about. And being an introvert where, even though your job almost requires you to be a little bit more out there and animated and stuff. What are some of the things that you do to, to recharge? I mean, I know you mentioned, you know, going home and having your time to yourself, but are there any other things, uh, tips or frameworks that you, you can provide, uh, that help with that recharging or accelerate that recharging? Cause I mean, I can almost imagine that it's fairly in high demand, a living in a place like New York city and having the role that you have to, always be on the ball and ready and, you know, ready to make those contacts and, you know, ready to kind of be immersed in certain environments. Um, how, how do you, how do you stay ready? That's a, that's a good one. Um, I think it's just the basics. So sleeping eight hours or seven hours is a must for me. I definitely don't uh, do all nighters anymore. Like I used to back in Abu Dhabi with a center strategy. It worked for that region, but just in New York, in terms of being sustainable, I love getting my seven to eight hours of sleep. I think the power of saying no is also really important. There's so many crazy cool events happening here in New York, whether it's like your favorite actor is doing set up a free event or your favorite musician is out in Central Park. Um, The power of just saying, you know what, they're probably going to be here next week again as well. So I'm just going to stay in and not go out every single day. And, you know, I think that part's pretty powerful to power the ability to say, no, um, I'm not going to lose myself with the, you know, the fear of missing out, but rather just stay in and just relax and take it easy and, you know, watch that catch up on game of Thrones or whatever, (laughs) read a book or two, just take it easy. Like your lives don't have to be, um, full on 100% of the time. I think one important thing that people misunderstand about Instagram, for example, that it's just the highlight of your life. It's not yeah. a live stream. And people think it's a live stream, that people are doing these crazy things every single second. Like, No, it's a curated journal of snapshots of people's lives. It's completely different. So when I explain that to people, they begin to realize I think, yeah, so sleeping well, power of saying no, um, those things kind of keep me sharp and activated. And also just surrounding myself with interesting people. I mean, I'm fortunate that within my role, I get the deep dive into meaningful topics and meaningful subjects. And it's all about building that personal relationship, which I think pretty strong assets on, you know, being an ambient slash introvert. I'm the exact same way as you. I, I don't get a lot of energy. Well, I mean, I, I lose energy being in places where there are just too many people and I, I thrive off of those one-on-one conversations. Even if I go to an event where, you know, let's say I'm hosting or there's, you know, a lot of cool people to meet, you know, the best conversations or the best times that I have is when I can create, you know, a real relationship with maybe one or two people there and have a real conversation with them um, throughout the, the evening. I have, you know, I don't, there's really not much in it for me in terms of like a energy manifestation. If 
you know, I have to kind of be all over the place. So I can definitely relate with you there. Um, and even I'm, I'm in Toronto right now. We're participating in an accelerator program out here. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, we are, you know, I have a few friends here and stuff. I, you know, I've, I've been to the city a few times, but I, I haven't even told them that I'm, <laughs> I'm in town just because for the, for the four months of the program, we really just want to capitalize on, you know, the, the EIRs that we, we have, the, you know, the daily meetings with and the, the programming and, you know, kind of growing the, the territorial and, um, you know, our, our commercialization here in the, in the region. Yeah, so, you're in incubation mode. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you got to scale, you got to grow. I also, I mean, plug for the trade commissioner service. You should definitely reach out to some trade commissioners in Toronto. Well, maybe they're, uh, uh, they're free. They don't charge you. I mean, well, they're not free. Technically, you're well, obviously you're paying your Canadian taxes, so yeah. <laughs> you might as well use these services. I'll, I'll connect you afterwards. Okay, most definitely. I appreciate that. Um, I there was the yeah, just being here for two weeks. It's really funny because the only time that I actually was like, okay, I have to go out. Like the FOMO was real. Like I can't stay in anymore is when the Raptors won the Easter Conference final. Oh, yes. That was major, right? Like, I'm not even a, I'll admit, I'm not the, the best basketball expert out there, but I, I was really happy. Yeah, that, that really united the whole country, I think. Oh, yeah. Can you, can you maybe share some thoughts around uh, maybe some of the people in your life that have helped you along the way that maybe you never expected anything um that you know you'd be able to provide them anything in return, but you've just received an abundance amount of X, Y, Z, and whatever, however you define that. Um, can you provide some an idea? Yeah. Um, so people that I helped in my life. Um, people so I won't call them by name. Yeah, I won't call them out by name, but in general, um, I get, well, I'm also a, I volunteer for the World Economic Forum as a global shaper. Yeah. Uh, so within that community, I basically wanted to ensure there are as many of women of color in the community. Mm-hmm. So I guess I went out of my way to, I just looked at my friends and I pinpointed some that were definitely diverse in their nature and amazing human beings. And I just kept telling them about global shapers and the reasons why they should apply and maybe quench some potential imposter syndromes that they were facing and just keep hitting them with the ROI on joining that community. So luckily, um, I think about like 90% of the people that I suggested to apply got in. So that was great. And they're doing wonderful things. They're doing great projects there. I see the impact they did. They have on their micro communities within the global shapers. So I think that's what I'm getting out of it, quote unquote, is just seeing the community get more diverse and see them grow with that community. And and now they're doing amazing things and it's like a multiplier effect. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably one of the ways I'm happy to help some people. Um, Also another one that's a bit more precise is that I used to be uh, sounds fancy, but honestly, it's not. I was the vice president of academic affairs for the Economic Student Association at University of Ottawa. It's just a good thing, I'm sure you remember. Um, and part of that was helping students uh, swim through the the confusing maze of academics and help them build relationships with their professors and help them understand their degree, which courses they should take to kind of 
uh, make sure they're uh, doing good things. So one time there's this one dude that walked in and he looked really, um, he, he looked down and he sat down, we talked for a while and basically he got to the point saying, listen, I don't think economics is for me. I'm not doing that great. I don't think this whole degree thing is for me. I think we're going to drop out. And I just want to talk to you before I do, just to get your thoughts on that. And I, you know, I that was uh, wanted to let him speak, and I heard him, and I said, "Okay, um, if you're not passionate about this, or if you just don't feel the value, you're seeing the value in your degree, then it's fine. You can go off and do something else." But he was like, "No, no, I love economics. And I love. Like, I wish I was good at university." And I was like, "Well, hold on. Like, let me talk about his marks. And like, hey, marks aren't that bad. You had a few." Um, major uh, missteps in some classes, but those classes are tough. I'm not even doing good in those classes. So you got to like stop comparing yourself and stop demanding that you get A pluses and everything. It doesn't work that way. Like literally, statistically speaking, you know this, like a B is an average for a reason. <laughs> not like everyone gets A's. That doesn't make any sense, mathematically speaking. So he understood that he digested it and I gave him some pointed advice on how um, he can use his degree for the future and how the importance of getting a degree for your income, how you're still going to open up so many doors. If you just get this degree done, he was halfway through as well. Wow. And uh, he, um, the impact of that, I guess, was he decided to stay in. Of course, that was just one small factor in that overall decision that he made. But um, I guess uh, there was one point where I just, I honestly said that, you know, I do believe in you. And then he responded, like, uh, unfortunately, that no one, no one has recently said that to him, which is, you know, it's kind of sad. But mm -hmm. I, that guy, and I told him that I believe in you. If you just focus a bit more, I think you can pass and do well. And uh, that played a role. And we graduated together. And after two years, he got his degree, and he's quite happy with his life. So I guess that's another way I've, I guess, helped some people. Um, I don't really expect anything in return, but I was. I'm happy that when I look at his uh, life, he's exactly where he wants to be. Wow, that's beautiful. And with with Global Shapers, I mean, phenomenal organization. I, I had the opportunity to be a shaper in, in Edmonton for uh, a few years. Now I'm an, I'm an alumni, but you know, it's still a very awesome organization to um, you know have that relation with and stuff. Um, how do, if people want to get plugged into the, a network like that, what, what are some of the things that you suggest to them? Mm, good question. Um, it's tricky because it really depends on the city you're in. So the Global Shapers is a volunteer group and they're committed to doing projects in their community. It's a cities-based type of organization. So mm -hmm. as you mentioned, you were in Edmonton. I was part of the New York chapter and the Abu Dhabi chapter. So if you're listening to this and you want to be a Global Shaper, the first thing to see is find out if your city has a Global Shaper chapter. Mm -hmm. You literally just go on a search engine and type in your city and Global Shapers and it will pop up. Um, if that's the case, if you do have that community in your neighborhood, um, just begin meeting with shapers. Just uh, go online, just type out Global Shapers. Uh, let's just use Edmonton, for example, Global Shaper Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And then you'll see on the website, there are a bunch of different names and there are LinkedIn addresses. Just reach out to a few and say, hey, we'll have coffee just to chat about um your experiences as a shaper and then get out there, listen to them, take notes, and then feel free to ask them saying, Hey, what's the recruitment prospect, prospect like? Tell me more about that. 
So I think genuine conversations around and with shapers will help your cause. Just understand to see if it's a good fit. Also, there's an age requirement. It's, you know, between, I think, 20 to 30. So you got to be within that range. Mm-hmm. But I mean, about global shapers, you can also go look at Sandbox. You can look at One Young World. Um, there's a lot of different community communities out there that are like that. So even if you're a bit older than 30, it doesn't really matter. Just go out and find another one. The whole thing is just reach out to people and meet them in person and get used to the the idea of rejection. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, five or six people, you'll probably get one that will say, yeah, sure, let's meet up. And that's not because they're rejecting you as a person. It's because people are busy. Yeah, It's all it is. People are busy. They don't know what's going on. They already have 10 other people trying to meet them. So don't just, I know it's easy to say have confidence and reject imposter syndrome. I understand that, you know, that those are real things and it takes a lot of time to go through that and having professional help will definitely um, empower you to get over those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't have those conditions and you're just a bit shy, um, you know, you got nothing to lose. Just go out and find these shapers and talk to them. That's some of my best work partners, best friends through that Global Shaper Network. That's, I highly mm-hmm. recommend it. Switching. I definitely, absolutely. Yeah, so switching gears a little bit. Um, so you are the co-founder of a magazine called yeah. Mind This Magazine. Mm-hmm. Can you, wh- what is that all about? I, first of all, never knew about this. So this is... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So William Greenwood and I, one of my best buds, we co-founded a magazine. It's all online. It's a team of 30 people wow. based around the world. There's no ads. We don't want VC money. Um, the whole idea is very, I, I would assume, to me at least, it's simple. Generation Y and Z are entirely misunderstood by the mainstream media. We're either called very lazy or we're called, watch out, they're taking all your jobs. <laughs> it doesn't add up. Uh, the financial crisis has definitely um, limited our potential in success and growth and um, having a net worth, et cetera, et cetera. So our magazine, Mindless Magazine, is all about redefining what success means for the 21st century young professional. We cover policy, technology, lifestyle, culture, and it's all about getting like-minded people to sit down and share their analysis and thoughts on what they think is important right now. Um, we're more of a analysis type of uh, coverage. Our editorial is kind of, we aim for to have one or two articles a week. We're not trying to be um, Huffington Post or BuzzFeed. We're trying to be more of, let's say, um, Let's say there's in the retail world, there's Walmart, which is needed. I love Walmart. But then there's also Prada that focuses on, you know, high-end clientele with bespoke um, products that are very expensive but very good. So we're kind of positioned towards that angle where we'll give one or two really good articles. Um, we we have a week and uh, we have 175 countries reading us. Um, wow. We're pretty – yeah, it's a lot of organic growth now. We started back in when I was in university, actually. So it's been a while, but um, we're growing and um, we basically have a a real life in-person community called the Cool Cats of New York. Mm -hmm. And that's geared towards ending loneliness in New York and 
it's an organic group where we bring like-minded people together to become friends. You can be cooking French fries for a living or cooking financial derivatives. It doesn't matter where you're from. We're all equal. Come on in and we hang out. We do we do book clubs. We do picnics in Central Park. We go to the museum. We have lots of dinners, brunches. We, we do whatever you want. And it's really decentralized. So you just join the Facebook group and you just create an event and you do it. It's based on your time. It's based on you entirely. So there's no excuse of I don't have time or I don't have money. It's entirely based on you. So these are just some cool things that the mag- Mindless Magazine community is building up. And uh, the long game basically is, we again, we don't want VC money because we feel that once magazines take VC money, they have to deliver quote-unquote results and growth marketing and they have to get clicks. And when they get clicks, quality of articles go down and then they lose themselves and they're, they're just a really shitty version of BuzzFeed. And that's happened to a lot of different magazines that are trying to target young professionals. So we don't want to do that. Um, instead, we love to do some conferences, um, some summits, some um, communities. We're already building a lot of different community events as well. So we'll find ways to monetize. There's definitely a focus now on building a brand. And I'm fortunate to say that we definitely have a brand. People are applying to us all the time. Our New York community is 150 people. So uh, we've hit us. We, I think we've struck a really good chord, William and I. So I think we're just going to keep going and be consistent and slow and steady. Of course, if you want to write for Mindless Magazine, let me know, man. Uh, there's an application process, but uh, it's not that complicated. Um, if anyone else wants to sit down and write, it is volunteer position. We don't pay unfortunately but what we do is give you a platform to reach 175 countries and when people uh you know type in your name on a search engine they're going to see a huge portfolio of articles on your thought leadership they're not going to see random you know tweets about game of thrones so i think it definitely the value had for joining the team uh we aim for about an article a month and our articles are a bit longer which is really interesting yeah. our readers want longer articles they don't want the 400 word blog posts they want the 2000 word deep dives so anyway yeah um that is uh mindless magazine well firstly congratulations that it uh, kind of reminds me of the hustle i don't know if you read the hustle um where you know what's uh, so the hustle was a, a magazine that was well it was an online digital magazine that was started by a gentleman named Sam Parr. Um, I think right now they're based out of San Fran, but he moved he moved from the Midwest. And it, I mean it was a little bit uh, on the opposite side of the spectrum in the sense where every morning they would send almost like bite-sized information in terms of news that millennials would find relevant um, cool in the tech you know financial uh you know uh, cultural sectors and stuff and i mean the way that they kind of you know appealed to me i guess was that you know they they wrote in a language where it just it wasn't stuffy and it wasn't you know it was very kind of like laid back but at the same time they had some you know really strong editorial talent and every every Sunday, they also send out a, a more long form piece of content. Um, you know, in the past, like you know, they did a really strong deep dive in, you know, um, you know how Walmart came to be, right? I mean, how initially it started off as just a, you know, a means for the founder to, you know, create a, a living, a, a lifestyle for for himself, 
and he his wife didn't allow him to move to a big city so he he placed the walmart strategically in a region where there were six surrounding districts um around and you know that kind of model which he kind of landed on serendipitously because his wife didn't want to move to a big a bigger metropolitan region that model allowed him to really kind of find a niche and grow and scale um the the whole kind of walmart and stuff so yeah they do some really interesting deep dives and stuff um i, I know you guys are you know much different it sounds i'm, I'm definitely going to look into that and um I yeah definitely. Definitely. the great thing is it's never been easier to set up your own magazine and create your own team and go out there and just serve markets because i do believe mainstream media is just they just don't get it not all of them of course some of them do but you can the editorial boards like everyone's like 60 uh, on there's so many great world-class journalists coming out of carlton university for example and they're barely getting non-paid internships doing tweets at CBC, or quite frankly, they should be leading the national. Hmm. I mean, I'm very passionate about this. I won't go into into the full-on rage mode, but mainstream media, no matter where you are, is waiting to be completely disrupted by our generation. We just need to somehow find the time, money, and heart to stand up and speak our voice. And business model, too, I think. You know, kind of to your point, you guys are staying away from ads uh, because you know, yeah. that. I mean, imagine reading an article about living well and holistically, and then all you get are ads about like random drugs to make you taller. Like yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't jive. And of course, you can control that. There's native advertising. We get it. The entire ad model is just uh, we feel a bit flawed as well. Um, of course, SEO is important, and you have to now write articles in certain formats to make sure you're you're read and et cetera, et cetera. I get that you got to play the game if you want to win. But at the same time, we're really fortunate that everyone's willing to spend their volunteer time and to go to Desip to build up Mindless Magazine because they see the value and they see the brand. And mm-hmm. there's uh, other ways to monetize in real life events and conferences. I'm learning a lot from the Global Shaper community and the World Economic Forum and the One Young World, and I'm pinpointing areas where they can improve. So what I would love to do one day soon is William and I will hopefully have our own summit with Mindless Magazine. Um, and we'll uh, not compete, but we'll invite everyone to come join and see how we do things and how we measure impact and how we build a greater sense of community to end loneliness and to create uh, just a healthier intergenerational society where everyone is listening to each other um, and not just losing themselves with ageism. You know, back in my day, I was like, stop glorifying the past. I want, to, I want to dig into that a little bit further. I mean, loneliness is a real thing, especially yeah. in you know the metropolitan regions, which you know is, is, comes to a little bit of surprise if you're looking at it from a very high level, because you think, well, you know, high you got nine million people here, I still find a few friends, but yeah, uh, it's the opposite. And why? Why do you think that is? I think perhaps people are, it's, it's a loaded question, but I, at a high level, I think it has to do with, in America at least, like no one has gotten a real wage increase in the last 30 to 40 years. Well, but the costs of healthcare, costs of education, 
are astronomically increasing every single second. So you got people who literally have not gotten money, a, a relative increase in 30 years or 40 years. And then you got all these costs that are going through the roof. So people are obsessed with working as much as possible. Mm. That's one. Then another thing, even if they are quite successful, they still need to like double down and focus and grow. And the financial crisis, um, this didn't help. It completely dislodged so many people, pushing them into poverty, pushing them down a few rungs from upper middle class to lower middle class. That I just don't think people have the financial means and the time to actually invest in building meaningful relationships and going out there and talking to people they don't know and taking the chance to being a bit more open-minded. That's like the economical, economical reason. The culture reason, I think, is, I don't know, I think we're just... Like when you go to a networking event, people show up with their best buddy. So now they're just going to talk to their yeah. best buddy and refuse to talk to anyone else. I've seen people go in groups and they just make fun of everyone. Yeah. So it's just not like, like that, that's not conducive. And then they have the, they have the, I guess they have the nerve to go out and say, well, that was a shitty yeah. event. I didn't meet anyone. Too. I'm like, well, don't go with someone. Go by yourself. Yeah. Be brave. Yeah. It's not the, I know, and there's different conditions preventing people from doing so. But if you are financially and mentally able, then go out and do that. Go by yourself and, and make things happen and talk to people. Yeah, you're going to get rejected by weirdos, but that's life. Um, so I think that part, it's, it's just not normal, right, to go out and talk to people, to bond with them. It's as if when we all hit age 30, we just stop making friends. And every friend that we made in university and high school, and that's it. It's very puzzling to me. I don't know why I do that, um, I, but I do see the economic reasons. Yeah, and I think there's a there's a level that the you know digital revolution is kind of contributing to this, right? Where you know we are comfortable with you know making friends online, and even more so saying things online that we may never say in person to. Yeah. people that we meet and that level oh, yeah. of comfortability online is actually a detractor to our human to human connection capabilities, unfortunately. Yeah, entirely. And then taking a really macro like anthropological look at it too. I mean, people are obsessed with getting married. Yeah. They're obsessed with living cookie cutter life. Like, you know, go find a, a wife or go find a husband or whatever, get married crank out two kids, get a house, go into debt, and then just take care of those two kids for the rest of your life. Yeah. And only hang out with people who are also having a husband or, a, or kids or wife. It's very like, if you're single, there's something wrong with you. Or if you're like, people, you know, I'm sure we all know friends that get a new girlfriend or a boyfriend and then all of a sudden they disappear and they just hang out with themselves yeah. for like a year. Like, that's not healthy. That's not conducive to anything. That's not giving back to society. I, I, I'm willing to challenge and say that I don't, I don't even think that's good for your own relationship with that boyfriend or girlfriend. But again, that's how society is raising us. That's we, we all have to somehow get a husband by, by I don't know, age 24, then crank out two kids by age 29, somehow make six figures, somehow pay for these kids' education. Like it, it, I feel that the game has changed, but the old old stock folks who are still in power don't get it so they keep they uphold these societal norms 
that are causing massive increases in mental health issues and are leading to loneliness and leading to fragmented societies. So yeah, technology is there and, you know, that's definitely not helping in some cases. But I think it's just structural issues with this 1930s way of trying to live a life in the year 2020, basically. It doesn't add up. I, I agree completely, especially as you talk about what I would kind of coin as the institution of marriage here. I think it's, or just the institution of families. It's very different from kind of how our parents experienced it. And to your point, the folks that are still kind of upholding these systems and laws that still enable these past olden day behaviors are, you know, they're, they're more or less in power. Um, but can you maybe give me a, a little bit of idea in terms of how you think that those institutions have changed and how people can be best suited, at least in your opinion. I mean, obviously, you know, this isn't this, you know, we're not trying to make a, you know, we're not trying to prescribe any, you know, anything to people. I mean, please, if you're, this is something that you need right answers to seek some professional help. But can we provide some some idea in terms of how kids coming up nowadays, you know, whether they're in their mid twenties or early thirties or or whatnot, how how they can kind of approach these institutions and and whatnot? So I guess institutions you mean by like the workforce? Well, let, and, let's let's focus on the, the marriage institution. I think that's a very interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I, I am honestly no expert on <laughs> me either. So let's let's pretend. I mean, I think the first step is just simply understanding the problem. For example, if you're single, you're being taxed more. Mm. So there's almost like a cost of being single. Mm. If you think of it that way, that sounds very strange. So then why don't we talk to our politicians and our leaders and saying, hey, why should I be taxed more because I haven't found true love? Like it doesn't and add are up. They, are they being and taxed I, more because they're not sharing expenses with a significant other? We, I mean, the flip side of this, and I guess this is where my economic degrees comes into play, is that if you get married, you can file taxes together and your tax rate goes gotcha. down a bit. So the flip of that is that means if you're single, your tax rate is higher. Thus, you're being taxed because you haven't found love yet. It's very, I know it's, it's, it's a mental exercise, but you have to think about tax credits and taxes and the whole tax system yeah. that way. So the way the, our entire tax system works in at least uh, North America or Canada and U.S. is that they reward you getting married by you being able to deduct more and do all these different financial um, uh, tax deductions, which is great. I'm not, you know, that's wonderful. Um, whatever we can do to help parents raise their children and, and be more economically uh, sustainable. But at the same time, I mean, there's something wrong with that, right? Like, it's, I don't know the solution to this, but if we're not even aware of that, then that's a big problem. So creating awareness, understanding that you're at a disadvantage by being single economically, which is simply crazy. It shouldn't be that way. I mean, even think of the different, I'll bring it, I'll make it even more um, down to earth. Look at family plans, family plans for Apple Music, family plans for mm. Spotify, for Netflix. It's it's just cheaper to have a family. 
Mm-hmm. And when I say that, obviously, you have two kids, yeah. it's not cheap. Um, the average, the amount of money it takes to raise a child from zero to 18 in the U.S., according to 20, it's an older study, but it's $187,000. That's bare minimum. That's zero to eighteen. I have a lot of parents. Oh yeah, and I have a lot of parents tell me that that number is insanely low. That if you want to give it a bit more of a a better life, it's probably like two fifty, wow. two seventy. That is insane. So I'm not saying it's cheap to be a parent. What I'm saying is that the solution to that is not making it very unaffordable to be gotcha. single. Interesting. That. that so I think that's the first step people are um, who are in their early teens or whatever. People who are just single in general should be aware of that, and they're not. So I think being aware of how the tax system is gamed against you is a bit of a, a needed thing. Another thing is also parents, right? Parents, um, they are from a different generation, and they have different expectations based on their own life. And I don't blame them, but you have to keep reminding them and yourself that they grew up in an entirely different world where having only one income was more than enough. That when you got a degree, you can go get a job. That simple equation doesn't hold anymore. You simply you get a degree now and you just wish and hope you might get a job in some field that would hopefully pay you some money. It's an entirely different value problem. So we have older generation with their expectations, and they're not understanding the angst that our generation is facing. So again, the second thing is understanding that those who are in a place of authority may not understand you and your angst. So how about communicate with them? How about bring them into your fold? Help them understand the the struggles that you face and the realities that you have. then the third thing is reject. There's a lot of misconceptions about our generation. Like we're, we're, we're crazy. We're, we're sex crazed society with Tinder and Bumble. Here's a fun fact. Our generation is having less sex than our parents. Mm. The older generation was getting it on. Cue, you know, wow, wow, chicka, pow, wow, music <laughs> on your podcast. It is completely <laughs> not true that Tinder and creating this new generation of crazy sex parties. It's just not true. The math doesn't add up. So again, when you hear these crazy studies about our generation, question them. Think about that. Dig deeper into academic journals, not, you know, fancy quick reads with, you know, the top five reasons why our generation is horrible. Like, give me a break. So misinformation is another issue that's um, sustaining this unfortunate um, pressure on how to create families and be married, et cetera, et cetera, by all before the age of 28 somehow. I think this topic alone can be its own podcast. But, um, oh, yeah. With, with everything that you do and with how much, how well you're able to collect information and, you know, you know, synthesize information in different sectors, whether it be startups or government. I mean, in this case, talking about, you know, the, the policies around marriage, you know, there's a lot of, you know, just following you on social media, there's a lot of posting and sharing of material that you do. Um, what are some of the tips and tricks that you've adopted to, you know, stay highly relevant and informed and, you know, this, what could be considered as a confusing and very, you know, 
tons of information provided to us world? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I think it comes down to curiosity. I'm really curious on how the world works and how it doesn't work. What are the levers that can be pulled to make this world a bit better, to help with income inequality, with help to help with the, the digital divide? Um, these are the issues that drive my curiosity. And I just read a lot of articles um, online. I mean, obviously, I own my own magazine, so I love uh, consuming a, a probably around anywhere between five to 15 articles a day. And with me, it's when I absorb knowledge, the point of knowledge is to grow and to share. I just don't understand if you're a super genius, but then you refuse to share your knowledge with everyone. I'm very confused by that. So when I read something that's so powerful, that really shifts my mindset, I go off and share it. And Sometimes I get messages from fellow friends on different social media platforms saying, thanks for sharing that. I never thought of that way or I didn't know that even existed or I always check your feed to make sure um, you're bursting my bubble on politics or technology. So I think it just comes from me personally. It's about being curious. It's about recognizing the social injustices around the world and that, and this is a bit of a, semi-controversial statement, but I think in the year 2019, we have all the solutions we need for all the mm. problems that we have. We already know what to do economically, socially, um, socially, overall. It's a matter of now doing and implementing, and that part we're not very good at as a human species. So if we already know all the solutions to all our problems and the world's still uh, and going through interesting phases for various cohorts and demographics, then that's just, that drives me crazy. That's just inefficient in my own way. So that's kind of what drives me to read so much, uh, consume, and then share um, and generating those conversations. Um, so, t- you know, tips and tricks is just be curious and read just use an aggregator you can always use apple news if you don't have time to read or there's good newsletters that you can sign up for for the wall from the wall street journal to bloomberg opinion um you can either go out and search for news or you can let other organizations email you news however way you do it i think it's just a good way to understand the world and your own city there's um an organization called singularity you may have heard of it and they're, they kind of have the same thesis that you just shared there in the sense where, you know, the human brain, since it evolved from the sub-Saharan deserts, you know, X of 100,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, however long, you know, it's only grown linearly, but the tools and technology around us has, you know, kind of grown exponentially. So kind of along that theory we have all the things that we need to solve some of the world's biggest problems. We're just not adept as leaders yet to adopt these things to help solve some of those problems. Basically what they're saying is that we haven't really, you know, matured as human beings to believe that we can go out and solve some of these world's biggest problems. But I, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, if we can curate and cultivate more leaders that, you know, we'll start knocking off some of these problems one by one. I mean, even if we look at the, the level of 
diseases around the world that, you know, are, are life threatening to humans and how, you know, technology like AI or genome sequencing or, you know, you know, things in the digital health space, how they're, you know, kind of solving these diseases one by one. It's really remarkable. And it's things that we thought that we can, you know, we couldn't have even dreamed of doing, you know, a hundred years ago, let alone, you know, yeah, 100%, man. I mean, when people say the government can't do anything, the government is slow and lethargic, I like to remind them the government sent people to the moon, but the government invented the internet via the Pentagon. So the government can do things clearly and can do them really well. If there's a general lack of belief in the government and its organization as and its purposeness, then that's an issue that society needs to grapple with because basically due to some crazy lobbyist PR marketing schemes over the course of, I don't know, during the eighties and nineties that we've diminished the role of unions, that we've diminished the role of the government, that now it's come to a point that many government agencies are potentially not the most effective. It's due to a lack of belief and systematic uh, destruction in, my belief, in that belief on these institutions. But the government as an entity can definitely drive real change from the bottom up if we empower it by simply believing in it, A, and B, funding it the right way as well. Sometimes it's not about spending more. It's just about spending the right amount of money in the right communities. But I, uh, what always gets me confused is when people just say, oh, the government's useless, they're always in your way, uh, they can't do anything. Like, are you joking? Like, by creating the internet alone, it has fundamentally changed the yeah. world. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a whole thread there. I mean, just the fact of, yeah. you know, more or less. I work in both. I work for public sector, private sector. I work for startups. I work for some, like, a lobby firm, CFIB. Uh, like, I'm not saying with a masterman, but I understand various vantage points. And both sectors are highly valuable. And obviously, if they all work a bit closer together, the world would be a better place. But this, this misinformation that the government is filled with incompetent people that can't do anything, that just drives me crazy. It's simply not true. When I tell them about the Trade Commissioner Service, for example, they go wild. They go, what? What do you mean? This sounds like you're fostering a whole different ecosystem. Like, well, yes, that's what the government can do. It's all part of our, it's just a part of the mindset. And when I mentioned earlier on the podcast how Americans haven't received a real wage increase in like 30 or 40 years, I think that's due to the systematic destruction of unions. I really, I'm not saying I'm a pro-union guy for everything. Obviously, balance is the key. But by tipping the scales towards, um, large corporations that definitely don't want to pay that much taxes and want a labor, a mobile labor force, et cetera, et cetera. I feel that the pendulum swung the other way where wages simply aren't increasing, but the demands to work more are, you know, the whole open office scenario, the working on your phone, being connected at all times. It's wonderful. It's helping us all be productive. What I want to know is, are we all getting paid more? The answer is, if you adjust for inflation, no. So let's talk about that. Let's have that conversation. Um, a healthier society, I mean, it's the whole good old-fashioned, you know, the Ford model, right? If if you pay your employees more, they can go out and live a better life, and they can go out and be better mm -hmm. consumers. And, and it's not like it's we're, 
lacking in the resources to do so. I mean, we've unlocked tremendous amount of value and abundance with, I mean, just over the last, you know, few hundred years, you know, it's just something that is unfathomable. Um, so who are some of the people in your life that you can, you wish you can say thank you to more? Um, and why have they been influential for you? And, you know, what would you say to them uh, so that you may not say that you may not have a chance to say to them in person? Do you have another three hours? I mean, that is, I have so many people to thank. Um, what a powerful question too in the month of Ramadan. So that's a great, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I think that's something uh, hopefully all Muslims around the world are thinking about. Um, but honestly, I, I, I think everyone, like I, I, every single step of my life has been possible only because people believed in me and people helped me. I am definitely not here because of my own merit. Like uh, whatsoever, like uh, like I believe that our whole lives, like fifty percent of it, is determined by demographics, where you were born, and what you look like, what your last name is like, things you can't control, and the countries you're in. The other fifty percent is comprised of probably I would say twenty percent of you and your own efforts, and then the other thirty percent is just the people you surround yourself, um, the mindset that they have around you and just general economic trends that you again can't really control so having said that i mean so many people like literally every single job i've ever gotten is because someone said hey i think you should apply or hey have you seen this or hey let me refer you or hey i believe in you like for my parents for my sister uh so many people to think um i think the one thing that I could do better or tell them in person or whatever is just simply thank you and keep sharing the impact that they had on my lives and that they have on my lives. Sometimes I, I think they don't understand how much they mean to me or how much they really shaped me. I really do believe that there is, there's this great book that everyone should read. It's called the myth of meritocracy. And it will fundamentally change the way you view yourself and the world. It's by a famous economist uh, who used to work for the New York Times. And he basically systematically destroys the whole idea that you work hard and you make it. And it's you. You're the reason why you succeed. Like completely with data, with economics, macroeconomics, microeconomics, interviews a bazillion different CEOs from around the world. He's not this crazy socialist. He's definitely a firm capitalist. But he systematically explains why meritocracy is a myth. Even the inventor of the word meritocracy didn't want it, like didn't mean what it means today. So definitely read that book. That's a massive one. And that would really change how we view the taxation system and how we, how we view welfare. But yeah, I mean, thank if, everyone if, in my if life. If we can get a little bit micro and not include close family members. I mean, obviously, there's a tremendous role that parents and brothers and sisters, you know, play positive. Yeah. I mean, okay, how, how about, okay, can you provide a, 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 a single example? Yeah. So I wanted to move to New York and, um, 
that requires, you know, living somewhere for free, that requires having someone that open doors and help connect you with different people. So friends like Yafa, who is a dear friend of mine that I met in Geneva through the Global Shapers um, back in 2013, she was like, you got to move to New York. I was like, okay, one day and fast forward five years. I'm like, hey, I think I'm going to move to New York. And this woman is absolutely amazing. She found me my roommate. She found me where I where I should live. She opened so many different doors to the Global Shapers. I, through that, I met Michelle Chung, who was the, the first person to say, yes, I'll meet you and hang out um, in New York. From there, I mean, of course, Komal, uh, who's a dear friend of mine, she was the one that shared the job description of the trade commissioner she was the one that let me stay on her couch initially to find find jobs and to find interviews and, and to live here um, i literally lived like on her couch for a long while same with yafa so the, the you know these amazing women um helped me uh, enter new york and build my community and find a job and find another job so definitely the, these people have been paramount um in helping me be who I am today. So that's a, that's how's Dito. Thanks for sharing that. We'll make sure that that note gets out to uh, those three wonderful individuals that you, you mentioned. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, How how do you suggest, I mean, I think you may have painted a picture a little bit earlier, but how do you suggest with youth entering into the workforce um, to thrive in this age of disruption? And, you know, what do they don't know that they don't know? I love it. Um, What they don't know is depending on their industry, their university degree does not matter that much. I spent a total of four years getting a degree in international economics and development from the University of Ottawa. And I spent about 15 seconds talking about that during my interview process for a sector strategy in the Middle East. Like 15, it was only, oh, do you have a degree? I was like, yes, it's this. Okay, okay, moving on. So that doesn't mean don't get one. You need a degree in order to get into that interview process. But I would say, I mean, the way I approached it, and it depends on your industry, right? If you're going into the science, that's a whole different ballpark. But if you're in the world of economics, public policy, et cetera, et cetera, uh, or banking or whatever, what I did was if you're going to university right now, volunteer for your student association. Mm -hmm. The skill sets that you will gain by being involved in the student association will matter far more than an A plus you got the econometrics. I will guarantee you that. So the first step is get if you don't have a student association for some wild reason at a university, <laughs> go out and make one. Just go out and do it. Because honestly, that really helped me lock in some great co-ops, that helped me lock in some great government jobs I got while I was you know, add a student as well. So definitely take part in your student association. Another important thing, if let's say you're in high school, um, don't avoid drama class. Drama class is so good. If you can do improv, do it. Because those skill sets of communicating um, on the spot, that's that's so much more valuable than, than getting an MBA from Harvard. Like just being able to do improv, to be able to, the skills gained from drama class is so valuable. Of course, ironically, or funny enough, if you do that, you probably have a better chance of getting into Harvard and getting that MBA. So I definitely, if you're in high school or university, of course, um, improv, drama class, these, these skill sets are so key. 
so important that they just don't teach you in university. Um, definitely do your best to work during university. Um, so it depends what country you're in, depends what economic situation area you're in. But if you can get a job, um, join FSWEP, which is if you're in Canada, I think that program's still around. Join the co-op um, opportunities as well. Get as much work experience as you can. So when you graduate, you're not just standing there with a random degree, but you're standing there with a resume that has some type of story arc that showed that you are an analyst in this position, that you are um, a barista at Starbucks that showed you can handle uh, tight uh, deadlines and really angry <laughs> customers. Um, whatever you do, do something. Don't just focus on your academic uh, scores. Of course, if you're in science, it's a different game plan, right? You gotta you gotta do well to get your master's, to get your PhD. To, that's a whole different game plan. But if you're not in that field, um, I think it's okay to you know settle for a minus but get a job. Why are you so bullish about technology, and um, where are you seeing innovation happen in the more traditional spaces? And before you answer this question, I know we are over time right now, so I just want to be respectful of that's your. Fine. Yeah, no, it's all good. It's all good. I, I, I blocked out okay. uh, a bit of time. Beautiful. So yeah, and just to it. repeat that, you know, why are you so bullish about technology? I mean, given the role that you have and, you know, kind of the past experiences that you've had and some of the material that you share on social media and, you know, why, you know, where are you seeing innovation happen in some of the more traditional spaces? So I believe despite all our problems that we face in society today, that the world has never been a better place that if you look at all the different stats the UN is cr cranking out, the World Bank is cranking out, IMF is looking at OECD, the working out forum, the world is going in the right direction. And that's largely due to, I believe, the right policies and technology. That's why I'm a big believer in technology. Technology is simply a tool. It can do a lot of harm or it could do a lot of great things. It's up to humanity. So the question really is about, do I believe in humanity? Some days I don't, honestly. Some days I do. But you're looking at the internet, right? The internet, the internet itself is like very, um, it's a place of very strange things and it's a place of very great things. So it, it's another example of technology is really up to the human and how, how they use it. Um, in terms of what traditional spaces are getting uh, disrupted. I think, honestly, governments are now really embracing the value add of going to the cloud and staying away from or slowly migrating off of the of on-premise. And what that means is basically the power of data and how to store it and how to use it. I think governments now are ready to kind of deploy hybrid solutions and be able to better leverage their data to deliver more bespoke policies and bespoke outcomes that are measurable, that make a difference in everyone's lives at a citizen level. So I think that part is really... Um, what governments government are you seeing that are actually leading this charge in your point of view? Um, let's see. That's powerful. I mean, the classics like the UAE as a nation, Singapore... Um, probably Japan, I would say, in some aspects. Uh, cities like Seoul are also doing great things. Um, I think I think Canada's getting it now with the advent of artificial intelligence. I mean, fun fact, deep learning right. is Canadian. Yeah. It was invented in Toronto. Father. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly, right? So I think now Canada is embracing that skill set. Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, what are you live such an active lifestyle? And so, what are some of the day to day things that you do to help you uh, just kind of manage your growth? Mm. Uh, I think the balance of hanging out with friends and just, you know, being focused and working hard. I do, I think, a decent job of, like, managing my time. Like, I'm a global shaper. I also uh, run an online magazine. I also work for Microsoft. I also have a social life. So I think just sitting down and being honest yourself and seeing... Uh, what you want to do and what drives value for yourself. I think that's important. Of course, I don't have all the answers. I haven't figured it out myself. I still struggle. Um, I still make mistakes. But just being honest with yourself, uh, understanding the importance of sleeping properly, of being healthy, of you know, um, saying thank you to everyone around you. I think these things ground. It's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and if you can pinpoint the hardest thing that you've ever experienced in your life, you know, what, what would that be? And typically for, for this question, I, I like for people to, um, you know, maybe share a little bit, some of the detail, but obviously not to a point where it's uncomfortable. Yeah, of course. Um, there's a lot of struggles I've, gone through personal growth but i think the one that would be relevant to this conversation would be uh let's see so i wanted to major in psychology so in high school i took college level math because i didn't need it and then in grade 11 i fell in love with economics so then i wanted to switch and major in economics however that required um different math classes that I didn't take. So I was in a spot where I was kind of screwed. So I went to the career counselor at my high school and that career counselor said, some dreams aren't meant to happen. Just stick with psychology. You're never going to go into economics. You can't do four years of high school. It doesn't make any sense for math. Like, there's no way for you to do this. Just, just stop thinking about that. So obviously that was some shitty advice, but luckily my parents um, they found out that actually Carleton University offers a grade 12 calculus course. And if you do that, you can, in theory, have the prerequisites to take the calculus course needed at any university in economics around the world. So I said, okay. And that Carleton University class didn't have any prerequisites. So I signed up and I had... I don't know, five months over the summer to catch up on three years of math, basically. So I had a great tutor, Dominique. He was a game changer. He taught math like no one other else could ever do. I had a great professor at Carleton. Um, she was awesome. Just, I forget her name, but Turkish heritage. She instantly saw that I was like in over my head on day one. And it wasn't like I was bad at math. I just I took college level math. So that was not university level math. So going through that five months gotcha. was definitely torturous. I basically studied yeah. calc and algebra for about five hours a day, every single day for about 
four or five months and it worked out. I, I got a B plus in that class, which then triggered me being able to apply for economics anywhere I wanted to go. I got into four different schools and within economics from nearest to Toronto to Western, all with scholarships, blah, blah, blah. Happy Dory school, you know, story. But I think that was probably the toughest point of, of my life, I would say. And I would definitely do it all over again because getting that degree yeah. obviously opened a lot of doors for me. And Peter Thiel, who's a famous investor and, and um, in his previous days, well, even now has created a lot of phenomenal companies. Um, you know, he often asks, you know, what are some of the important, what is an important truth that very few people with it will agree with you on? I would say coming back to the myth of meritocracy, I really do believe that it does take a village to raise one person and that you didn't make it on your own, that someone or some group of people helped you out. So when you do become that crazy rich CEO and you do only pay 2% of your taxes, really, I mean, society made you. How about you turn around and help make society? So I definitely believe that truth is true and very few people agree with me on. Um, I do also strongly recommend everyone to read Dream Hoarder, and that book is, it won the Goldman Sachs Award for Best Financial Book of the Year. It's all about how the middle class are actually the ones throttling social economic mobility. It's not the top 1%, which is, again, a very controversial statement to make. But it is a really good read, The Dream Hoarders in America. It's an American-based book. But it's, in fact, those upper middle class folks that are voting for political parties that are pushing policies that are only helping them and not lower middle class and not the ones who are poor. Wow, very powerful statements there. And I'll be sure to include those. Please, please do. In the show notes. I do have to I want to do a quick rapid fire with you. I just have five questions. Okay. Uh, rapid fire. Um, three words or less. Your favorite book ever. Uh, right now, Dream Hoarders. Your favorite uh, brand. Favorite brand? I don't have any. Ooh. I don't have any because I feel that they're all just like hiding behind really good marketing teams. It's not authentic. Favorite country to visit? Oh, uh, recently was probably actually. You know what? No, uh, Turkey, because of it's it's the intersection of of Asia, Europe, and the Middle East, and their own people. Beyonce or Jay-Z? Oh, wow. You know what? I love Beyonce. Um, Jay-Z has my respect. Uh, He's gone through some redemption. But um, I I can't forgive him for uh, apparently cheating on Beyonce. Beyonce is a a wholesome human being, and she deserved a lot more. And I'm happy they've sorted that out, I think. And Jay-Z's going on a huge tour of uh, apologizing and self-actualization. And I believe in the power of uh, apologies, but Beyonce. 
Favorite Game of Thrones character? <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I only started watching all that stuff a year ago, and I caught up to it. Um, Daenerys, Mad Queen. I love it. Shaz, where can people find you online? Uh, just uh, add me on Facebook, uh, Shaz Nasser. And um, if you're not crazy, I'll add you back. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a very colorful discussion. And, you know, we hope to have you again in the future. It's been my pleasure, man. I love these questions. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, these questions were really powerful. So thank you for being you and uh, Ramadan Mubarak, everyone. That's right, Ramadan Mubarak. Thank you. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Sea Tribe Festival, the very first media initiative of Sea Tribe Society. At Sea Tribe Festival, we aim to reimagine the festival experience with the goal of bringing together innovative and creative people and proactive thinkers. By integrating a business conference with music performances, trendy fashion shows, intimate roundtable discussions, culinary experiences, wellness sessions, and artistic activations, Sea Tribe curates inspiring environments that help catalyze action. This episode was also brought to you by Autonomic. Autonomic removes the biggest hassle when you are building software, which is actually testing it. By training computers, algorithms, and machine learning techniques to test software for companies so that your most expensive engineering talent can spend the time doing things that they actually like to do, which is releasing new products and new features 